0: Uh, Well, now that we have entered the presence of God together and we have worshipped him in the unity of the entire body, it is now time to release our kids to their classes. Uh, So kids, your teachers are heading to the back of the room right now. They have the signs for you. Go to the signs. You can go to them now. And as our kids go downstairs uh, to learn the gospel and to have an awesome day celebrating Christmas in July, uh, let's send them downstairs with a prayer. Lord, thank you for the children that you have brought into this family. Will you be with them and open their hearts to know you, to love you, and to worship you? Amen. Well, good morning. If anyone doesn't know me, I heard my name, that was great. At least one person knows me. Well, if anyone doesn't know me, or if anybody didn't hear Alan, my name is Harlan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Billings Vineyard Church, and I gotta tell everybody I have really been enjoying uh, this sermon series so far because we've been opening up Scripture and we've been seeing these really vast sweeps of it uh, all at once, as we see all the Old Testament and New Testament connections, right? It's been really cool. The Bible absolutely uh, blows me away. You know, when I felt God call me into full-time ministry, I didn't just quit my job and uh, sort of jump into the deep end of ministry right away. God gave me the wisdom at that point in my life uh, to really realize that truth was, I didn't really know Scripture As well as I could or should And I definitely did not understand it well enough To do what he was calling me to do Uh, So instead of jumping into the deep end of ministry What I did was I quit my job I still quit my job I'll be honest, it was awesome (laughs) And instead of jumping into ministry I jumped into the deep end Of uh, sort of formal academic biblical studies But going into it I had heard people say things like, they would look at me and they would go like, well, you know, seminary is where faith goes to die. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's kind of extreme, Ed. <laughs> um, you know, I thought that was kind of extreme. Uh, but you hear these stories about kind of on-fire Christians going to pursue uh, biblical degrees And then kind of sing behind the scenes, right? They sort of like sing behind the curtain and sing the wizard in the Wizard of Oz. They they see how the the sausage is made, so to speak, Uh, and they they conclude that Christianity is all a sham. And they come out uh, of actually seminary as atheists because you know maybe they saw some ancient document or something that apparently the church tries to keep secret. Maybe they read the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Philip or something like that. But either way, they conclude that Christianity is not right and they leave us atheists. So there was always kind of this thing in me that needed to study the Bible to as far an extent as I had the means and to see if it was really all true, to see if it was a sham or not. You know, because there there was at least the possibility, I realized, that this was just something that I fell for because I was born into a Christian family and maybe my parents told me that it was right and so I believed them, but I had never really investigated it for myself. You know, it sounds like it sounds like a weird contrast to be called into full time ministry and at the same time entertaining the thought at least, entertaining the thought that maybe none of it was true. But, you know, that's just the honest way that it happened for me. And God knew that I needed that issue resolved. So what he did was he gave me this incredibly deep hunger to pursue finding out. Is this true or is this not? So I went to seminary. Seminary? No, no. I went to seminary. And I studied the Bible and I studied theology. And as scripture was opened up to me. I'll tell you, I was absolutely floored by it. It was studying the Bible that convinced me that Scripture was divine. You know, in Scripture, we see this collection of, you know, 66 books written by all these different people from all these different kind of cultural influences as they lived around these different people groups. And it was written over this incredibly long period of time. It was written at a time when worldwide, generally low literacy rates. uh, It encompasses this super wide array of literary styles and devices to be contained into a single book, right? We see history, poetry, prophecy, apocalypse, prose. We see all these things crammed into this one book, and it's absolutely perfect. It's absolutely cohesive, it's absolutely unified and it's perfect from beginning to end. This is what I found, but we shouldn't actually expect it to be like that, right Written by so many people over so long a period of time that's actually one of the arguments that uh, people coming against Christianity they're going to say oh no, it's written by all these people you know it it, it can't possibly be true but if We should expect it to be a mishmash of nonsense. That's what we should expect, written over so long a period of time by so many people, but it's not. And even if none of the Bible were true, which it is, but even if none of it were true, it would still be the greatest literary work of all time. I don't think that can be argued against. So when I saw how beautiful and perfect it was, I was convinced that it was impossible to come up with this merely from mankind, especially over so long a period of time and through so many pens. There's no way that it would have such a singular perfect focus, right? Like odds are just incredibly slim. You would never go to Vegas and put money down on that. Incredibly slim odds. And one of the things that convinced me was that when I read Scripture from start to finish, it becomes really clear that the ending was planned from before the beginning even started. The end of the story was already written, and the rest of Scripture just kind of perfectly fleshes out and leads up to this ending. But of course, the the early, the early authors and the middle authors of Scripture, they didn't know the ending. So how could all of their dynamic and situational writings perfectly lead up to the ending when they didn't even know it. They didn't know the ending. Well, for me, it must be because there is one single author over all of Scripture who planned everything out beforehand. That author must be God. And if the author is God, that means that everything in Scripture must be true that's mind-blowing. That absolutely floored me and transformed me in my journey. And I promise this is all going somewhere. It's going to Jesus, I promise you. So one of my favorite things uh, about God's story is the way the Old Testament is sort of like a disassembled puzzle, and it slowly gets put together to make a picture of Jesus. So think about what it's like to work on a puzzle. Each piece has its own individual picture or part of a picture on it, right? Uh, And sometimes we find chunks of pieces in the box that go together, so we see a more developed part of the picture, while all the other parts are still kind of scattered and unclear. They're there, but they're not put together yet. But as we make progress on the puzzle and we move toward the end, those pieces all start fitting together. Right, they start making sense with each other, and eventually they end up forming the picture that was intended from the beginning. Right, this is a great illustration for the Old Testament and how it paints a picture of God's plan in Jesus. You know, for example, uh, in Moses we see God's appointed prophet who led the people out of harsh slavery. Well, that kind of sounds like Jesus. In King David, uh, we see God's appointed king over his people. And he was a man of war who defeated the enemies of God to protect Israel. Well, that kind of sounds like Jesus. David's son Solomon was king over Israel, but he wasn't a man of war. Solomon was a king of overwhelming abundance and peace. Well, that kind of sounds like Jesus. So you put all three of those pieces together, and suddenly we have a slightly more developed picture of what God's plan was the entire time, to give the world a true prophet who would speak the very words of God, who would reign as king, freeing his people from slavery to sin and death, who would conquer the enemies of God, and who would usher in everlasting peace and prosperity for God's people. You see how that works? We see Jesus in this. And the entire Old Testament is like this. It's not just people, it's also events and systems like the sacrificial system and a whole bunch of other things. It's super, super cool. Maybe I'm a nerd, but this stuff, I think, is awesome. Well, in this series we have been looking at a few of those pieces, right? The rest of the story. And so this morning, we're going to look at the piece of Passover. So Understanding all that, I promise, is really going to help us moving forward. So now that we understand all that, let's look at our text for this morning, pray, and then get into it. And we read, uh, beginning in Exodus chapter 12. Now, just so everyone is clear, this is not the entirety of the Passover story. It's pretty long, and I don't think we, any of us want to read the entire thing. So we're going to start in verse 21 and go through verse... 30. So beginning in Exodus chapter 12 verse 21 we read Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them Go pick out a lamb or a young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal Drain the blood into a basin then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood Brush the hyssop across the top and sides of the door frames of your houses and no one may go out through the door until morning. For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and strike you down. Remember, these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, You will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, What does this ceremony mean? And you will reply, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshipped. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night, and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. These are the words of the living God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. By your Holy Spirit, we open our ears to hear it this morning. We open our hearts to receive it. And we open our lives to be transformed by it. Will you convict us of where we fall short? And will you lead us to Jesus for complete and joyous restoration? We pray this in the name of our risen, reigning, and returning King, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So, obviously, this passage is pretty intense, right? There are people slaughtering animals and using the blood to paint their houses, but with only a certain kind of paintbrush for some reason. There is something called a death angel, which is a pretty awesome name for a heavy metal band, but that's obviously not what it is. Uh, There's this death angel flying around killing people, but the people with the blood paint, for some reason, they're not being killed. What is happening in this passage? Well, as I've already explained, uh, to understand this puzzle piece, we need to connect it to the pieces around it. So, long story, very short... Uh, After Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, God would have had every right to just wipe out creation at that point. But instead, God promised that he would send a descendant of Eve's who would destroy the works of the serpent and make everything right again. In the beginning, that's really all we know. That someday a child would be born who would be God's champion and somehow set everything right. That was God's plan the entire time. Uh, So then as the Old Testament progresses, God works out this huge cosmic restoration plan through the fallen creation and through fallen sinful people. That promised champion was planned to come uh, through a nation called Israel. And as the history of Israel progressed, I'm telling you, they had to endure some crazy stuff. Because God was using them, using the nation of Israel, as sort of puzzle pieces to show the entire world what God was like. And what his plan for redemption was for the entire world, both Jew and Gentile. It was always God's plan to redeem both Jew and Gentile. So... God even told Abraham way back in Genesis 15 to show that this was all planned. He told Abraham way back in Genesis 15 that this event that we're reading about would take place. Beginning in verse 12, we read, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So that, that's exactly what we're seeing in our text this morning. Through God's sovereign ordering of circumstances, Israel ends up in slavery to Egypt for 400 years and our text that we read is the outworking of God bringing judgment on Egypt and bringing Israel to the land that he promised to Abraham. And we see that God has a plan for Israel in Canaan, right? God is waiting for the wickedness of the Amorites to push his his patience to the point of judgment. You know, one thing we need... To know about God is that He is the just and righteous judge. Uh, there is no sin that is left unjudged in the end. Sometimes judgment comes early, as in, like we read in the case of the flood or here in Egypt, and sometimes God's judgment waits until the end. But either way, God's justice demands that all sin from all time be paid for one way or another. And this is that time for Egypt. Um, but the Bible tells us that all of mankind is sinful and fallen, right? Including Israel. So why didn't the angel of death take out their firstborn sons too? That's a good question, I think. Well, another important thing to know about God is that his justice is never separated from his goodness and his mercy. Yeah. Yeah. So in this situation, we see a very, very important biblical puzzle piece. We see what theologians call substitutional sacrifice. And that just means a sacrifice that acts as a substitute for me. So let's say I'm an Israelite uh, in Egypt, the angel of death is coming, the wages of sin are death, and I'm a sinner, which means that in order for God's justice to be satisfied, I, or in this case, my firstborn son, needs to die, right? Pretty simple. But God, in his love, provided a way for me in Egypt to actually be passed over by God's judgment because something else has died in my place. What we didn't read in our text is that the people are actually commanded to eat the sacrifice. And by eating the sacrifice... I'm admitting that I'm a sinner. I'm admitting that I am deserving of death, but I am identifying myself with the sacrifice, saying this substitute is counting for me. Does that make sense? So when the angel of death comes to my house, he will pass over it because he's going to see the blood on my door. The blood is proof that something has died in my place. So God, he provided a way This is so cool. He provided a way to satisfy both his justice and his mercy. You see? Punishment is doled out, but not on the actual offender. That's really good news for me in Egypt, right? And we see this puzzle piece, it grow and expand after Israel is freed from Egypt. This basic premise uh, grows into the complex sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Hyssop branches, what they use to uh, paint their door frames with the blood, that even gets transferred over to the sacrificial system, and the priests use it to sprinkle cleansing blood on people so they can be forgiven of their sin. They can go into God's presence. You see, it's all connected. It all grows. So we can see how this puzzle piece is really, really important to God's plan to redeem all of creation. And we see that God worked it out on this earth through real people. But all the while, this idea of Passover and substitutional sacrifice, it was actually pointing to something bigger and more overarching the entire time. Because you see, the thing about animal sacrifice is that it never actually took away anybody's sin. The author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of goats, (laughs) whoops, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. That those sacrifices actually ended up reminding the people of their sinfulness. It doesn't sound like it worked, did it? And there's, there's several reasons for this, but I think one obvious reason is that it's because animals didn't sin against God, and so it's not actually a just punishment to kill an animal, is it? Right? Mankind sinned, so the death of a man is owed, not a lamb. We need a one-for-one swap for justice to actually be met. So we can see that all of this, this Old Testament stuff, is actually pointing to something bigger. It's pointing to something else. That bigger thing is the true and great future Passover that is yet to come. There's another one coming. Again, the author of Hebrews, he calls all of these Old Testament things that we're looking at, he calls them types and shadows. They're kind of like seeing something bigger and more pure, but seeing it through sort of a cloudy lens. It's not all, all the pieces aren't put together yet. And it's not until Jesus comes that the lens actually comes into focus. That the lens shines backward over the Old Testament and the great mystery of God's plan in Jesus is revealed to the world. This is what Jesus was revealing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus as he opened up the Old Testament to him and showed them how it was pointing to him the whole time. I really wish I could have been in that sermon. And as scripture progresses, what we find out is that there's another Passover coming that makes the Passover of like Noah's family in the judgment of the flood that makes this Passover in Egypt look pretty mild, honestly, and pretty tame. This final great Passover will be when Jesus comes back and raises all of mankind from all of history to come before his throne, and the judge will balance the scales. This is a real event in the future that will take place that has been planned since the beginning. You know, the entirety of Scripture kind of leads up to this moment in the future when Jesus will stand over mankind and separate people according to their eternal futures. Now, just like the original Passover, all of mankind should go to eternal condemnation. But scripture tells us that not all do. There is a group of people in Christ made up from every tribe and tongue and nation from the entire world, like we sang about this morning, and I, I think the second song, and the entire world who are saved, and they are passed over in this final judgment. How can that be so? Blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sin. We're not doing those sacrifices. How is this so? It's possible because God has already provided a substitutional sacrifice that actually does accomplish what all of those slaughtered lambs in the Old Testament were merely pointing to. And what the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. With all of that in mind, with Passover, Jesus, sacrifice, with all of that in mind, and God's big cosmic eternal plan, listen to the words of Isaiah. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. And had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Praise be to God. Jesus is the perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice to die in the place of sinners. Only as true God could he actually be without sin, the first requirement to satisfy God's justice. And only as true man could he actually stand as a genuine representative for mankind. So Jesus Christ is our perfect and sinless sacrifice, fully God and fully man. This is why John the Baptist cries out when he sees Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. This is why, in Revelation, Jesus is the slain lamb on the throne. And this is why, before Jesus' death, he sat down at the Passover meal with his disciples. And he broke the bread, and he passed out the wine, and he said that it was his body, he said that it was his blood, that he was the true Passover lamb. And he commanded them to take the bread and wine, identifying it as his body and blood about to be shed for them, and he told them to eat it. Kind of like the old Passover. He told them to eat it and identify themselves with his sacrifice. And when we admit, when we do this, and we admit our sinfulness to God, and when we look to, to his Passover lamb in faith, we have the blood of Christ put on us, applied to us, not just to the doors of our houses, but actually to the depths of our beings, identifying us as ones who have been forgiven and cleansed, and forever identifying us as those who will be passed over when God's judgment is dealt out in the end. You know, the entire story of the Bible, it's kind of weird, the Old Testament it seems like this this irreconcilable paradox where God is promising judgment on sinners and at the same time, he's also promising that he's going to save sinners. And these these two things seem irreconcilable until we see that God's justice and his mercy toward us come together in the sacrifice of his own son in our place. You know, Israel owed God their firstborn sons but God has provided his perfect and sinless son so that we don't have to give our own sons or to stand there ourselves Jesus came to die in our places so that we can live and so on the day when Jesus will return and the judge sits on the throne all those with the blood will not receive judgment but everlasting mercy That's what the Bible tells us. They will be passed over and ushered into the everlasting bliss of God's presence. So as we turn to the table this morning, I'll invite the band up. As we turn to the table this morning, I really hope that we can see this meal in a little bit of a new light. You know, I've said before that this meal is extremely deep in its meaning. I have said before that it represents that great future banquet that we are going to enjoy in God's kingdom. It's also the more developed and true Passover meal that the Old Testament one pointed to. As sinners, we are in the same spot in many ways as Israel and Egypt. God's judgment is coming, but God has provided us a substitute by whom we can be saved From judgment if we look to Jesus in faith. It doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter where we come from, it doesn't matter what language we speak, it doesn't matter what color skin we have, it doesn't matter what we've done in the past, none of that matters. All that matters is whether or not we realize our sinfulness and our guilt before God, and whether or not we look to the sacrifice of Jesus In faith, and say to God, I need that sacrifice to count for me. I need the covering of that blood. Otherwise, honestly, I know that I'm screwed at the final judgment. And those are the facts. And when we do that, the blood of Christ is applied to us, and we are sealed in the safety of Christ for eternity. We are sealed like Noah and his family were sealed into the ark as the flood waters of judgment covered the earth. The ark was a picture of Jesus. We are sealed in Christ like the Israelites were sealed in their houses. Remember, don't leave your house. As they were sealed in their houses behind the blood as the angel of death swept over the land. And as we take this meal together, it's sort of like having another layer of blood applied to us each time we take it in faith. Now, we don't become more saved. We don't become more secure. But this meal reminds us of the lamb who died in our place, and it grows our faith. And now each time we take it, and our children ask us, what does this ceremony mean? Right? Like the Israelite children would ask their parents, they come to us and say, What is the deal with this thing that, that we do in church? We can tell them the rest of the story. I, <laughs> that was an edit that I went, I was like, Oh no, I didn't put that in there. I got to go back and put it in somewhere. <laughs> now we can tell them the rest of the story that this is the meal of the Lord's Passover. When he sent his son to die in our place, the lamb has been provided. And by the covering of his blood, we are saved. So before we take this meal, I just want to give a short time to reflect on all of this. To search ourselves, to confess our sinfulness silently to the Lord. And then to take another coat of blood applied to us. To eat this meal and identify ourselves with the sacrifice of Christ. And to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we stand as those redeemed by God himself. As those who will stand in confidence and worship. Because the Lord, in his incredible mercy, has poured out his wrath on Jesus so that he could pour out his blessings on us the Father has turned his face away from the Son so that he could turn his face towards us in mercy and forgiveness and peace. As we enter back into worship, God invites all who want to be identified by the sacrifice of Jesus to come forward and take this meal. If God's words have pierced your heart this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, know that you are invited into this salvation. If this is you and you want to come into salvation this morning, I encourage you to either uh, go to the back so somebody can pray with you or to simply confess your sins to God on your own and place your faith in the finished work of Jesus to count for you. I would then invite you to to come and join your fellow believers and your, your new brothers and sisters in coming forward and taking this meal with us. Join us in identifying ourselves with the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. So as you're ready, I'm going to ask that you please come down um, and take from one of these two tables. We have both bread that can be dipped into the cup. There are also the little prepared things if you prefer that. Um, I'm asking you to take it, to dip it in the cup, and then to go back to your seats. If you're concerned about juice running all the way down your arm, maybe take a little dip, although it would be a pretty cool thing to have the blood of Jesus pouring down you. So I'll leave that up to you. Um, Come, take the bread, take the cup, and let's go back to our seats during this first song and just have a time of silent reflection. Look at the elements. Just consider this stuff the Passover lamb and taking this meal and what it means. What does it mean to identify ourselves with the sacrifice of Christ and to be covered in his salvation? And then after this first song, we will take the meal together in unity. So let's now enter back into worship. Come forward to the table and take some time to confess our sinfulness to the Lord, to look to Jesus in faith. If anybody does need prayer for anything, we're going to have our ministry team in the back this morning just to avoid congestion up front. I'll invite you forward.